Hello, Internet. This is John Farmer, Dilatore, Executive Director of the Ozarks Film Foundry. I'm here with you for another episode of Outland Filmmakers. And today we have a special guest, Steve Williams. Steve Williams is a master visual effects animator. He's responsible and credited for the Tyrannosaurus Rex of Jurassic Park and the T-1000 of Terminator 2. He also uh, led effects efforts, effects development for The Abyss, The Mask, and Spawn. Uh, he could be credited really with revolutionizing cinema because after him, movies were changed forever, after the T-Rex especially. And so he's here with me in the studio, and we're going to talk about visual effects as they were, um, as he made them, and where we're going next. Steve, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, John. It was a fantastic talk today. Very, very comfortable environment, you know. Great. I don't. Make, I didn't make an ass out of myself. Right now. <laughs> You're fine. And I told you, I, I told you, I did shower. <laughs> you showered. Oh, okay, good. All right. Uh, on on radio, on podcasts, and on video, you can't smell anyone. Yeah. So we were all protected. Yeah, we have no smell of vision. Well, give it time. <laughs> Steve was here earlier uh, for a live uh, in-person audience and a live stream where he, uh, he is part of our creator series, and our creator series is where we bring in accomplished professionals to talk about filmmaking and their careers and train the uh, the newbies, the new people coming into the business. And so we really appreciate him being here. And he went through his entire uh, professional background and how he got into effects. But for the purpose of the podcast, maybe we can start there again. Sure. How did you get into effects? I understand you're from Canada. Mm-hmm. I was born in Toronto, right? Um, and my parents divorced, and I started back and forth, you know, the States and Canada and stuff. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And so, you know, I went into animation you know, and uh, there was sort of no jobs at that time. So I started working in weapons engineering for Navy. And then... Um, You're a dual citizen, I understand. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, so I, the U.S. Navy. Yeah. And then so, um, you know, that led me to Industrial Light and Magic. You know, oddly enough, I, I know I'm jumping around, but, you know, I started a company called Alias Research. That was oh, that in, was your company? No, no, no. I started that oh, company. Oh, you started that? Yeah, they were a software manufacturer. You know, I became a hotshot. I was kind of the only classically trained animator, you know, at that time. And, um, you know, there's myself and guys like John Lasseter, you know, kind of the some of, some of the early guys. Mm-hmm. He right? went on to direct, um, was it Toy the, Story. the Incredibles and Toy Story? No, no. Well, no, The Incredibles was uh, directed by uh, Brad, me, Brad Bird. Brad Bird. That's yeah, right. Who's also a very, very nice guy yeah. mm-hmm. as well. And so... Um, you know, there was a couple of us that kind of saw a future in animating in, in 3D, but it, I didn't know. I was working on I was working on the Closens weapon system. You know, I was working on and also the Columbia. How does yeah. one make a? How does one go from from weapons development into? I mean, you, just for people who don't know your biography really closely, yeah, into animation. Well, it was very strange. I, I actually I've drawn all my life. I took cla- classical animation, and then and uh, I, there was no jobs at all right so i kind of lucked into this computer data thing you know in um the early 80s right is where it started you know and um i mean you know i was going to be a pro hockey player and then i was a sniper right and then i you know like all these things all these crazy careers right i I did not really see where this was going to lead to you know this is because where you came from i mean yeah i think i your family are lumberjacks right yeah we're loggers yeah oh yeah yeah so i i you know and my, and my dad did not want me, right, to be, to be blue collar, 
right? And I kind of told my and my dad was a very nice man. Actually, when I was building the T Rex head, that's my dad died, nineteen ninety one December, this month. You know, thirty two years ago. Hard to believe. I was literally building the Rex head. Wow. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It was crazy. It was crazy back then. And and uh, you know, I didn't really. I, I was kind of more enamored with how things worked as I mentioned in the talk today you know that's what really compelled me you, you almost know. have the mentality it seems to me of a hacker because hackers oftentimes want to know how things work and of course hackers go into computer things well and you try you try and break things right you, you essentially try and break things you know and because um, you're, you're you're trying to sort of figure out the nuance of how things operate you know and I've always built with my hands my whole life you know I've welded and blacksmith you know I've welded you know since I was 13 12 or 13 right kind of thing but I started blacksmithing about 25 years ago you know and I became very hooked on that because why 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 blacksmithing especially after a uh, career uh, in, in, in uh, computer uh, graphics it's, it's a good question John I'll tell you why it's very very interesting my ex-wife right you know um, Ellen she kind of got into it and I thought well, okay it's your thing you know, kind of thing. And then um, she goes, oh, you should try it. I said, well, yeah, okay, all right. All right. And, and I did. I loved it. I got hooked. And what was so cool about it is because what I would do is I would make tools to make more tools, right? And the, the, the interesting thing, the conundrum, the antithesis, right, especially of the computer world, right, was that there was no control escape, right? There was no undo, right? You either followed the procedure to make something or you started again, Right, mm. and I lo I love the purity of that. I love the purity of it. So I, I you know, is the computer world the one that's that, that's final, or is it the making the working with metal that's well, final? Well, no, f film never dries, right? Yeah, film never dries. It's like taking a you know, it, but you can just reheat metal and start over again, right? Well, you just start. You have a new piece of material, right? But in the mm. case of computer graphics and stuff like that, you know, you know, you know, you. You animate the principal walk cycle, you write the file out, you go home, you watch wrestling, you come back in, you know, read the file up again, start adding layer, layers of secondary motion and muscles, right? Write the file out, go home, watch hockey fights, come back in the next day, and you could layer the animation, uh, right? Because the thing is, data does not deteriorate, right? Whereas in the case of stop motion, it was at the time of camera. It had to be done at the lens, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the difference with computer graphics because... Not only could you screw with physics, right? You could you could defy physics, right? But the thing is, you could keep on reading the file up and bettering it. You could add nuance to it, right? And this was something, you know, that was completely alien, you know, to the filmmaking process, you know. So I found I found that very interesting. It was a very powerful weapon. Yeah. So so you had so you had uh, eventually made this this migration from weapons development into animation. And uh, from what I understand from your biography, uh, folks found you and brought you in yeah, to did. work on The Abyss. Correct. And so um, I was at the Analytic Sciences Corporation in Reading, Massachusetts, working on stuff there. And they said, uh, they're working on this uh, Navy film down there. And would you be interested in going down for a few weeks? I said, sure, no problem. So I went down. You know, and the company was Industrial Light and Magic, right? You know, down in San Rafael, California. And I was one of the only guys in the world that knew that software at that time, you know, which is really just blind luck, you know. And, um, and the software I, was, again? Alias version 2.4.0 at that time. And it migrated to uh, version 1 and 2 after that. And it was a forward kinematic system. 
and um, you're, you know, I've been I, I've been to Boeing, I've been to Ferrari, I've been all over the world, right? You know, and they you know, throw an engine part and say, "Model that kid." You know, that's where it kind of. So I became really fast. You know, because I'd always built with my hands, anyways. Right? Was this sort of like an AutoCAD that architects use? That's no, of well, well, that's Katia and I just format, right? So, so AutoCAD, AutoCAD was sort of a, a Katia. The, the the actual engineering specification was Katia and I just format. You know, when it came to AutoCAD, this was w- way before AutoCAD. Mm. You know, and so these were those are basically polygonal based data systems they were not uniform not non-rational um, what they call non-uniform rational beast blinds at that time right which are quadratic data right four-sided now everything's trinary right mm-hmm. to do with what they call quote-unquote subdivs right which is basically you know the way, na- way nature operates which is like three-sided triangles right as opposed to quadratic you know so it, it it, it you know like building any of those creatures. So the point of that is that it, it allows you to make finer meshing or finer skins, finer representations of reality. It, 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 yeah, it's more of an emulation of the way nature would operate with photon dispersal, right? And um, the bouncing, refracting of light. Precisely. You know, so uh, you know, there's um, the way photons would actually affect something. We so we would have um, we would in the early days right, in the early 80s and stuff like that, we'd have fractal geometry, right? And so fractal geometry was, you know, like the calculation of the way that a mountain looks. You know, excuse me. And uh, so, uh, but that actually migrated into what alias Beast by Modeler became because it was just so much easier to sort of manipulate that data. You know, and then, you know, all of a sudden Beast Blinds are gone and we're back to subdivs again. You know, which is interesting. There was another competing company at that time called Wavefront. So Alias and Wavefront merged together. At, in Silicon Graphics, the hardware manufacturer, ended up purchasing both both those companies. I wondered what happened to them, yeah. Oh, no, but they ended up purchasing both those, those companies, and out of that came another f- form of code called Maya, mm-hmm. right? Very powerful, and then that is now the industry standard. I personally don't like it very much. I think it's over-engineered. Yeah, I mean, we had 16 boxes at the bottom of the screen. We still did that stuff. I've tried Maya. It's pretty tough. Yeah. It's, it's very, well, very just, they're, they're, It's convoluted, right? I, I don't want to yeah. start slamming on them so hard. I mean, Autodesk owns them now, right? Autodesk owns everything, right? Well, in those days, there wasn't much around, and it was all of it was kind of a uh, pretty special specialized software. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on the abyss, what was the challenge? Uh, James Cameron, I guess uh, he wanted to make this movie. If he couldn't pull off these effects, he was going to do something else. So what did you have to do? Well, Cameron originally was going to take uh, clay and shoot at high speed photography and project against it, right? And, and that was sort of a, he was a very good engineer, very good thinker, right? And um, so they brought myself and Mark to pay in, right? And Mark wrote the code. He was a you know doctorate in applied math. So uh, Mark wrote the code for the sine wave distribution over the surface of it, and I animated the spine and the data mm. for it, you know, and so... So the liquid effects come from which part of that? The liquid effects? From the sine, from the sine wave? The sine wave distribution. And basically, we would put effectors all over the actual mm. surface of the pseudopod, and they would collide with one another and give the illusion, right, of a collision of water. Right, and um, we had one bounce ray tracing that we used stochastic ray tracing and sub. Well, this was pre-subsurface scattering, right? At that time, which is really just a big technical way to say emulating the way nature 
handles mm-hmm. light, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, you know, a, a photon has a life expectancy of 10 to the 18 billionth years and is given birth by dropping when an electron drops from a higher orbit to a lower orbit and gives birth mm-hmm. to this thing called a photon. The mm-hmm. travel, light, otherwise known as a light. As light, and it travels at, at 671 million miles per hour, and it travels in a straight line until it's thwarted by gravitational pull. Mm-hmm. Right, so it kind of lives a long time, you know, ten to the eighteen billionth year. Oh, it's, amazing. it's an amazing thing that we're playing with light, but light is what we traffic in, is what we use to make movies. Correct. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so you, so you nailed it. You were able to create these liquid effects, create the creature, the alien intelligence, you know, that was uh, manifesting water, right? Correct. And so, so that was a, that was a success. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a subtle, sensitive. Uh, sort of creature that you created, and then came another another Cameron movie, Terminator. Correct. Terminator Two: Judgment Day. Terminator Two. Oh yeah. So I remember I read the script and I went, "That's it. I got to build a human. I got to figure it out. I have to figure it out how to build a human." <coughs> so I built it the same way you build a shirt. You know, four, uh, four, I, four, I haven't made a lot of shirts. What's involved? Yeah, four four sided. You know, four sided. You know, you, you sew this together. You know, sew that together, and you have a sort of a shirt, right? Because it's made in different parts. Yeah. Okay. So, and um, I brought a very good friend of mine down named Angus Poon that wrote a um, a thing because when the the creature would actually animate or move itself, it would break everything, right? So we had control vertices that had to be stitched together. So we literally wrote a thing called sock. It was a piece of custom code at that time. So the pre-processing, right, after the fundamental animation that was done at that time, you know, it had to go through, right, um, it had to go through an iteration prior to being sent to RenderMan, which is a piece of custom code, right, that Pixar wrote Mm -hmm. before Lucas had sold the company to Pixar. Mm. You know, so, and that was all... And so the purpose of all that code there initially Mm -hmm. was what? To create the human, right? To create the body? Well, no, the the code, all the code did was stitch up the parts that were broken. Like you saw some of the early takes where the knees are all broken apart and stuff Mm. like that. So the code would actually stitch that together. What they call call C2 continuity. Mm. You know. So, so you were able to construct like the torso, the the limbs, like mm-hmm. the upper thigh, the mm-hmm. lower thigh, but mm-hmm. the con- the joints and mm-hmm. connector areas were difficult. Why were those more difficult than say the, a torso? Well, because the thing is, you want to do your 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 refresh rate on the monitor at that time. We're using three forty VGXs, SGIs, right? You know, they're this right. is the type of monitor. Uh, no, it was actually a type of machine. Type of machine. Yeah, it was what they call a workstation. Back were, then. were were these considered uh, cutting edge or top oh, of yeah. the line? Oh yeah, it's top of the line. Yeah. Top of the line, they're fastest computers in the world, you know, at that time, except for the connection machine or the the Y the Cray YMP or the XMP. And how? Well, yeah, the Cray is super powerful. But yeah. how does that how does that computer compare to a modern computer? Say, like my you know M2 laptop. Uh, well, they're a lot faster than they were then. I mean, we were using you know the risk based chips, and prior to that was the Motorola sixty eight hundred forty, right chip at that time. But the, those things are boat anchors now. Just to get a sense of comparison here, so they were they're top of the line then, but our stuff today outperforms. Oh yeah, absolutely. I know my laptop. I can edit a lot on laptop. Not your laptop. How about your cell phone? Right? You know. Yeah, really. Oh man. (laughs) I mean, refresh rates are crazy now. Yeah. And then you look at you look at Epic Games. They they manufacture the you know the UE UE five point three. Right? What's that? Yeah, Unreal Engine. Oh right? yes, yes, I know. And I that. think they're. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to remember the name of the chip that Nvidia makes for them, which I believe is the Titan. I don't want. I, I want to say five thousand or something. I'm it's, trying to keep up with Nvidia these days. I mean, they're really on the cutting edge. Oh, 
I mean, they, they, they yeah, I, everybody wants to be NVIDIA right now. Well, I know the guys are. I know all the guys are. Yeah. I've been they're there. well I, positioned. I, I've been there a few times. Yeah. They're yeah. first trillion dollar software company. Oh, I don't doubt it. Trillion. You yeah. know? <laughs> a lot of the artificial intelligence stuff going on right now and what everybody wants is more NVIDIA chips. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Oh, yeah. 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 So going back to Terminator 2, the T-1000, so... Mm-hmm. Just in case folks forget, don't know what we're talking about, the T-1000 is probably one of cinema's like most uh, uh, frightful, threatening villains. It's this uh, this metallic, liquid mm-hmm. uh, uh, robot well, from the future that can reconstitute itself. You call it polymimetic alloy. Yeah, okay, polymimetic alloy. So mm-hmm. it can remember mimetic, mm-hmm. and it's poly whatever materials, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's lethal. And so this creature you created... Mm-hmm. Right, so it's all math, and you made it on this old computer that was cutting edge at the time. Mm-hmm. And what else was involved in making this thing happen? Well, nothing. I mean, you're dealing with a very crude animation system, you know. And like I said, the only time you ever see his feet contact to the ground is that shot CZ one, you know, which was, is a hard thing to do. Well, yeah, you had to counter animate everything so the feet aren't going through the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Where, whereas in the case of something like inverse kinematic systems that I described before, you could animate the curve. We better describe it. it again for the for the podcast audience. All right, so forward kinematic <laughs> system. Sorry, it's just yeah, a it's different okay. audience. Uh, that's okay. So forward kinematic system, you, you, for an arm, let's say, or a leg, you have three channels of animation. They have to be represented by the pivot point of each rotational joint. It's all rotational data. So you set your first keyframe. Modify the frame, you modify the actual position of the arm, leg, form, whatever, right? Set another keyframe and it would in between it for free. The difference with an inverse kinematic system is that it dealt with an effector, right? And so as you moved in real world space, so it's now translational data, not rotational data. And when you start moving that around, it modifies the rotational data for free. So you're literally setting one channel of animation. So the benefit of that. You know, which it would have been virtually impossible to handle Jurassic Park without an inverse kinematic system. So, for the layman who who isn't as as well versed in this, you're saying that if you if you move the foot, the rest of the body moves the way it should. The physics of the rest of the body moves the way they should, based on just moving one point, like exactly the foot. So and you don't moving, have to go and animate every exactly. single joint. And, be, and, and it, be, it was based on the, hier- the hierarchy of the actual data itself. So I could grab the ankle and move the ankle around. Right, it would modify all the way back up to the hip. Mm. Right, then I could grab the effector of the hip and move that around, and it would modify everything, and everything else would stay. I'm still. curious, like how you were able to program how all those things moved relative to each other. Like, for example, how the knee joint moves relative to the ankle joint, or the hip bone moves relative to the well, to the, the knee joint. Okay, here's the difference. All right, so the thing is, I'd say, oh, okay, I'm going to grab the ankle, and I'm going to move around the ankle with an end effector. The the rotational data of the actual knee and the hip at that point are for free. And it is the real-world space manipulation of that end effector, right, on the ankle, which is obviously attached to the foot, right, that would push the rotational data. Whereas, whereas with, with forward kinematic system, I'd have to individually rotate at the pivot point. No, I get that. What, 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 I guess what I'm asking is that, you know, where or how did you uh, program, you know, what the knee should do? That was fundamental data that actually came from SoftMesh version 2.6.1, which is the inverse kinematic system. So they had built in this inverse kinematic system. So in the case of Terminator 2, Terminator 2, the actual data was the rotational data. In the case of 
soft homage, right? What we did was we built an underlying skeleton. That there was you go. the inverse. That's what I the inverse. To know. And so what I would do is okay. I'd have nodes of information, namely right. the high resolution geometry hanging off the actual rotational data. Right, which is invisible to the render. This is what I, th okay, that's there what I go. thought. So, so you, you had already, well, and the reason I asked because in these days you still didn't have stop motion animation. I mean, stop, I mean, you didn't have motion uh, capture. No, mo motion capture did not, there, uh, motion capture did not exist. All right, so you then. had to take, so this is somewhere, this is somewhere like sort of filling in the gap here, I guess? Well, no, you just, you know, you're an animator, you got to figure it out. You know, kind mm. of thing, and th there was just no, um, there was there was some cr very early, early versions of crude mocap at that time. There was one Italian company we, <laughs> you know, I didn't tell the story, but so I tested this early form of mocap on my dog. His <laughs> name was Hoyt, right? So yeah. I put these ping pong balls. Dogs on. always get it, you know. You launch them into oh, yeah. space. The Russians launch them into space. No, and I put, launch I, the monkeys, you I, know. Yeah, I, I put these ping pong. Balls <laughs> Poor Leica. I put these these ping pong balls on, on my dog. I thought, oh, I'm going to get him to get all excited. No, he, he he literally, in the data, he looked like he was pistol whipped, right? He did not <laughs> like having ping pong balls all over. Oh, my gosh, in the annals of science. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, uh, okay, well, that's all pretty interesting. So you uh, so you got the T-1000 here. Now, how many shots were in Terminator 2? 35. 35 shots. And in the Abyss was how many? 18. 18, so 70, 18. 72 seconds. So 18, then 35, and then Jurassic Park had how many shots? 50. 50, so we're getting, we're going up. Mm -hmm. We're going up with each of yeah. these films. Well, yeah, now we're at what, 2,800 or 1,000? That's where 3, I'm going, yeah, we've got the huge shot counts, and it used to be very difficult to do. It's, shots. Not, it's not even film anymore. Yeah, well, that, this is what's kind of interesting about it all. When, when, when CGI or computer animation served a story, you know, and 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 expanded the world, create or you know made something alive that hadn't lived in sixty million years. Uh, it's pretty revolutionary. Now six, it's kind of sixty six. Sixty six, Mister Million, a million years there, I guess. You, you Sorry missed, about that. You missed six million years there, John. Yeah. I think so. A million here, a million there. Soon they add up. Now the. <laughs> So so now they're just wallpaper almost. I mean, they're meaningless. So I guess the shots are meaningless. 2,800 shots, what kind of meaning can you have when you have that much computer animation? Nothing, because you'd end up desensitizing your audiences, right? So it'll take some other form of a revolution. Eventually, you're going to have sort of a war of the world scenario, mm. right? Where someone's going to say, oh, you know, like, you know, Orson Welles, he releases War of the Worlds, right? And people are like committing suicide because they thought it was real. So, well, so no, it we will, haven't it, even it, talked it, about deep it, it, it will actually, it will, it, whatever those are, but it, it'll be, um, it'll be the same scenario where they're going to release a film. It'd be some rom-com, you know, not some actors that we know, and there's going to be an actor in it and they're going to release it and they're not going to tell anybody. Right. And everyone's going to go, um, who's that actor? You know, who's, who's that actor? And, and all of a sudden they're going to go, um, in six months later, they're going to say they don't exist. They're not going to announce. They're not going to say, oh, you have to see this film. It's the first computer-generated, fully computer-generated resurrection of an actor or an actor. Well, this this that's a very good point because it, I, mean, I try to keep up on this stuff. I mean, I think we're looking at probably the first fully computer-generated or AI-generated feature film within the next 12 months. You have to lose that AI thing. A AI doesn't exist. Well, I mean, I, this is the, this is the I mean, machine learning or whatever technical term you want to use. But... But that's kind of what we're looking at is that we're not going to have real humans in them. They're no. going to be all completely made up. 
I mean, what you would have called computer animation hey, man, 25 know, years ago. Bugs Bunny never died. Yeah, that's true. Now, a while back, uh, I remember you may, uh, it's a movie not super well known, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Yeah, I never I, seen Kenny, I, director, did one, did a short, did the feature, and then I haven't heard from him since. Anyway, they uh, they have a scene there with Marlon Brando. They brought him back mm-hmm. for that. And uh, Marlon Brando was actually one of the first actors to have himself scanned on a polygonal data set. He's uh, one of the very first by Cyberware. Now, why was that? Don't know. I wonder why you allowed preservation. That. You know, and the thing is, you will happen. You know, a lot of us made predictions about this. You know, when I wrote that paper for Harvard, you know, back then it was called casting. Call it forced lawn. I wrote with a guy named Joe Beard, mm-hmm. and um, Joe was a the uh, head law professor at that time, right? And he approached me based on this crap I was talking about. He heard some interview I was talking about the resurrection of deceased actors, and boom, he contacted me. We wrote a paper together. You know, well, it's super relevant now. Well, yeah, I know. Everyone thought we we're nuts back then. Well, right? the whole turn, I mean, this whole strike with the actors right now, yeah. right? This is all yeah. about this. That's going to get worse. Well, I saw the terms. Well, I guess the term, you, you saw the terms that they just no, they struck. No, well, no. actors now I have to know. consent. I, I don't listen. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting because I think it's probably going to lose in the end. But, you know, the idea here is that any actor has to consent to any replica being made of their voice or body. That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting, interesting, right? The thing is, you you will have actors that are scanning themselves into data sets and stuff like that, and they'll they'll appear to five to ten films a year. But if you want the real one, you pay the premium. If you want the data structure, right? That is interesting, isn't it? It'll happen. Yeah, sure. But by the mere fact it's mentioned, you know, it'll Mm -hmm. happen. I'm not saying it's right. It's just inevitable. Right. Well, there is a royalties piece in all of this. I think they negotiated that. Sure. But it's interesting. Anyway, it's like very future forward, right? Speaking of future, let's go back to the past to get there. Jurassic Park, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stuff in Jurassic Park that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So, so as I understand it, you was told not to proceed with, you know, with what you was doing, trying to make. Well, no, the guy got the Oscar, Dennis Muren, told me, don't, he, he heard a rumor. I was building the data and he said, don't don't bother there's going to be no computer graphics in jurassic and that's mm-hmm. what he told me and he told you out of a place of fear you suppose no because his buddy phil was handling the project right and, and he's, and a, he's a stop motion guy stop motion guy right and so and i didn't listen of course i'm, I'm glad you didn't what else is new and um <laughs> i said i can do it right because we we just mark and i just believed you know mark, mark was not a, a data builder i was he was a mathematician, right? And I said, I, I, I can build a Rex, you know. And they, they said, what are you, nuts? They laughed at me until I, sh- until I proved it. How long did it take you to build that? Uh, the initial bone test probably took about two months, mm-hmm. you know. And where did you get the initial data for, like, the bones and the physics? I didn't get the data from it, you know. I, I hand-built it myself, right? I just found a um, – um, I didn't have it in the talk, but I, I found a uh, – basically a schematic of a T-Rex that they had found, right? And mm-hmm. I scanned it on a high-tech scanner, and I started constructing the bones, and whammo. But how, then how did you figure out the physics, how the thing would walk, how the weight worked? You you did talk earlier about, the, you know, sometimes the renderings you did, the, the creature was too light or didn't yeah. plod, didn't yeah. plod along, that, so the later, physics that, were off. That's later when the skin came on. Okay. Right? But no, the um, that, that was just... I just figured out the bones. I just in the walking cycle. Yep. I mean, no one had seen this thing walk. So how did no. you figure out the walking cycle? I just did. Oh, okay. You know, I had no information. I just thought it's heavy. You know, it weighed seven tons. It's the bones, right? So it's subjective at that point. 
It's when you added the skin that you had to actually really concentrate on gravity at that point. It's interesting. It's also interesting to me how at the time, so you had you had uh, uh, Tippett working on the stand. I guess they split everything up into three contracts, three three different groups doing you had three Stan, different Stan things. Stan Winston doing practical. You had Tippett doing technically he was supposed to be doing the stop motion and we were just supposed to add like little creatures in the background like the Paris Rolfes and stuff and little herds and, st- and, and shit but it was not supposed to be premiere mm-hmm. it was not supposed to be the main character so and I wanted a crack in the <laughs> I wanted a crack I wanted a crack of the main character you wanted a crack and they wouldn't give it to you so you took it you damn took re- the crack damn right I did and so which uh, you know all I mean movies had changed forever because you did the uh so, so you did this, and Muran was the head of the effects group, I guess. Correct. And he was the, he was opposed to because uh, he had his buddy Tip involved doing the effects, the, the uh, or stop motion rather. Yeah. So, um, so you your test was successful with the bone the bone rig there, and you yeah. wanted to show it to the producers, Kathleen Kennedy, Spielberg's producer. No, I didn't, no, I didn't want to. I ambushed them. They came walking in. It wasn't supposed to happen. But didn't you didn't you time it so that they would see it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I found when they were coming, and I had a monitor, a Barco monitor playing, and they come walk around the corner, and that's the first thing they saw. And so the so what did Murin and them all say? Were they pissed? His jaw hit the floor. Of course he was pissed at me. Yeah, yeah, you should have. And, until he won the next Oscar for it. Right, so. Well, that's what I'm curious about between the time. Okay, so so I always liked this movie. I interviewed the woman, uh, so... Uh, Dr. Ellen Arroway, Jodie Foster in the movie Contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I heard it's based on one astrophysicist who had credit taken for her claim as on radio pulsars. Oh, it, I also it, heard it was Jill Tarter who was the head of SETI. There's a lot of common stories like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so people taking credit. So the the back, you know, all how that all happened. So Mirren here, I'm kind of curious between the time you showed that dinosaur there, mm-hmm. you showed that rig, mm-hmm. and how Mirren angled his way in. Yeah. If you don't mind talking about it, no, I'm just curious, you know, how a guy, how a team who didn't create the work has the gall to take credit for the work. It's unknown what happens when they went into an office and the door closed, what he said. Right. Have you ever heard rumors or any stories about well, what I might knew, have been said? Well, I, I, I'm sure. No, unknown. Right. Unknown. He, he could have said anything. He could have said anything. Like, holy hell, just changed everything now. No, he just thought, oh, yeah, we were working. He, he could have lied through his goddamn teeth, you know, any kind of thing. But, you know, but the thing is I had thwarted his authority. It was not really the intention. I just know, knew that even if I would shown it prior to the producers for Jurassic to come up, I wasn't going to be allowed to show it, and they would have to show it. I just wanted to make sure that they knew who did it because – Murin's never touched a keyboard in his life. And that's the thing about a lot of institutional cultures, you know, is 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 obedience, blind obedience to authority, to the oh, culture. No, oh, no, oh, of no. course it was not you. No, no, man. In my policy in, in my view is that you have to question established systems or nothing. Absolutely. Gets moved. That's yeah. where creativity happens. You have you have to question convention. Yeah. Right? And to me, every time something makes it to a price list, time to question it, man. Yeah. You know. And so Murin didn't like his authority challenged, yeah. but he did like your work, and it won and it won an Oscar, so they took credit for he it. He won another one, yeah, yeah, and the Abyss and Terminator. So in the in the documentary, um, and I think he was wrong. I think that was just you know I get angry for you just watching what happened, and I've been through a couple things like that myself personally. It's, it's a tale of as old as time. Not our industry is not the only industry that suffers from that, right? No, of course it's true. 
Now, but this documentary, Jurassic Punk, um, you know, to me, it's it's a solid effort to make amends to try to get you the credit you deserve. There was a shot in there of Spielberg, and my question is, I'm just curious, does Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg knows you did it. Did he ever come forward and apologize or, or make right, or has he done anything on your behalf, and no, why not? No, I asked Kathleen, actually. I said, Spielberg knows. Then he says, oh, he knows. Why wouldn't the man stand up for you? Cameron right. stood up for you when George oh, yeah. Lu- when George Lucas wanted to fire you. Cameron had the decency to stand up for Not you. Not decency. No, it wasn't decency. He well. knew he knew it was behind what was going on. He was going to yank the film, and then they were going to get sued by Columbia. So you don't think there's any like moral motivation there? He's just worried about the legal no, consequences. Well, no, the the whole Spielberg thing. They 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 don't care. They don't care. Well, it, it's it's uh, really says it speaks poorly of Spielberg that he hasn't come up to stand no, up for Ka- you. Kathleen did tell me once, right? Because I spoke her on the phone, you know, and and um, and I told her I said the greatest illusion ILM ever created was Mirren, hmm. right? You know, kind of thing. You know, I said, you know, we were busting our ass in the trench, you know, and these control guys take complete credit for it what was Mirren's background how did he achieve prominence or get to take credit i know there's like sir he was a cameraman a cameraman yep and a cameraman winds up with that kind of clout in the effects world yeah, yeah. how does that happen well when john dykstra got he was on blade runner and star wars yeah when john dykstra who invited the you know the, you know basically all the motion camera things right for the original star wars and he got in a battle with lucas and left Mirren stepped in Right, and oh. basically took over that technology. Where did I forget? Where did Dykstra go after that whole thing? I with, can't remember. It was it wasn't Boss Richard Adlin formed Boss Boss Films. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so Murin was an oppor- Oppor- opportunist. He was he he just understood how to play the game, man. You know, I don't. You know, I'm not political. <laughs> Hey, we took a quick break. You probably didn't notice, but we're back. And we were while we were off, uh, away from the podcast, we got into a discussion about Alien, Ridley Scott, and effects in general, and what you show and don't show. And I was just thinking about, mm-hmm. and I want to talk to you about this, uh, Steve, mm-hmm. the, the things you show, don't show. Now, in a movie like Alien, a lot of it's practical effects, not computer-generated. It was that? A 19, lot. It's all practical. 1979, right? And yeah. so is it is it better? I mean, yes. Ridley Scott, H.R. Geiger, they built a universe. H.R. Geiger, right? But uh, Geiger... Geiger, sorry, yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, they built a universe, and Ridley Scott was able to actually really sort of exemplify his design into an action and make it work in a film. Yes, you know, but it was practicals, and so is it, it that much? Pr- is it the, that much better than the if it had been? In computer? my view, yes. Here, 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 Mr. Computer Guy is saying that. Yes, in my view, my friend, you know, you know, my buddy Jeff Yates here and I, right? We have all sitting here in the studio, yeah. sitting here in the studio, and my friend Al Cusera, right, and Jeff Yates. We're all sitting here. Oh, and incidentally. People should come and visit us out at the Bank Tavern in uh, Billings, Missouri. Billings, it's, Missouri. It's the happiest place. <laughs> It's the you know it saved my life. No, not an official sponsor, but we're oh we're no, it's, it's right. just a fun place. You know, you know, dogs are allowed. The best, and, and be- if you go there, you'll see, you'll see Steve. Oh, best pizzas ever, man! Best hamburgers. Oh yeah, and and I've met some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. I I had no idea, right? I literally just I went through a divorce. I put my hands over my eyes and dropped my finger on a map. And someone says you should look at Springfield outside of Springfield. So I found a home here. You know, I bought it on site, you know. Wow. I was here six months before I walked in, you know, and met my buddies, right? Right you on. Know? Yep, and I'm home. The Ozarks, I'm, that's a kind of an amazing story, too. Well, yeah, I was thirty. <laughs> I was 33 years in California. I just couldn't take it anymore. I, I just Time to get it. out. It was just, I, I, 
I'd overstayed my welcome. <laughs> well, it's probably good you did. You know, there's a lot, of, awful lot of people that are that are baking in the sun in Bakersville or, or Bakersfield rather, or somewhere else that should have left a long time ago, and then mm-hmm. kind of like they're they kind of lose their souls by overstaying. Yeah, it's just different. It's just different. Like the thing that blew my mind here about Southern Missouri right away is that people wave to you. Right. And the sense of family. I mean, I have families. I think they feel sorry for me or something like that. You know, I have families from across the street. They bring me food. Their kids bring <laughs> food across the street. And it's like un- incredible. It's mm. so sweet. That has never happened to me before. Ever. Anywhere. It's definitely a different culture than California. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, you're, and you're liking it. And growing up in Toronto as well, it was the same thing. You, you, you don't have families bringing you food across the street, you know, ever. Well, let me ask you something now that you're here in Missouri. Yep, sure. um, so, so, and one of the things we're trying to do, I'm going to kind of plug us for a second here in mm-hmm. addition to the tavern, the Ozarks Film Foundry. Yep. So we've had, we have an opera. For We're a city of 200,000, a million people in the metro. Mm-hmm. We have an opera. We have a symphony. We have uh, mm-hmm. ballet, fine arts, performing arts. Mm-hmm. We have Bass Pro, hunting for hunters, and we have baseball and sports. We don't have anything for the movies. Anything for Simina. So, so that's why we were, that's why this nonprofit was established. Understood. Now that you're here and, and there mm-hmm. are a lot of filmmakers here, independent, all independent. That's mm-hmm. why this podcast exists is to provide a perspective on indie filmmaking. Mm-hmm. What do you make of like cities like this, you know, and their future in making movies? Okay. Well, see, here's the thing. I, I think that. Um, I know you're kind of retiring and everything, but. Well, I, 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 I understand where you're going with it, John, but I, I think. I think if you look at Hollywood and you look at some of these meccas of filmmaking, they kind of jump the shark, you know? How so? I, well, uh, the Marvel franchise, need I say any more? Yes, that, but that's very that's very Hollywood. Yeah, it's very Hollywood, and that's where I'm going with that. So the, I think, right, I think the future is going to be the independent thinker, right? Like those young young kids that I met today, they are the future filmmakers, right? And so making sure that they have the tools... And stuff like that, you know, just sort of the basic technical stuff, right? Of course, I can help out with that and all that. But I think it's them that are going to come, sort of come out of left field with a new idea. So do they need to be in L.A. anymore? No, no, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I mean, my friend Al, he knows I love the weather here. They're, they should be filming here. You know, the weather is fantastic, right? The people are wonderful, right? They can't help you enough, right? The, the, the land is gorgeous, Everything. And then, and then, yeah, and, it, is, it is. And and one of the things we've been thinking about is how to make the Ozarks America's movie backlot, or the Ozarks stands in for a lot of American communities. You know, we a lot of our towns look like towns everywhere else. And so we're working on that and trying to build a film industry here, a long term mm-hmm. sustainable film industry. That's that's what we're all about. It's going to take one hit, John. It'll take one hit from some kid. Like I, I could have met them today. I could. It could be Lucy. It could be Josh. You know, any of those people that, that I met today, it, it, they could be the future, right? They're going to come out with one hit, and it could be a very simple story. You know, it could be a very simple story out of left field. Well, right? let me ask you, what what do you think, what what would it take for them to be competitive against the films being made in L.A. or the actors? Or how, would they, how would they manage a career? How would they manage the politics if they're all the way out here? They, For one thing, they don't have to worry about that. Number one, they have to follow their own heart. Follow their heart in terms of creation. Don't worry about competitive or anything of that nature. Just follow your heart and just follow what your mind is. Don't worry what they think down there because if the film is worth its weight in salt, it will stand out on its own. And that creates a competition for them, not here. 
right? Mm-hmm. In my view. No, I think that's great. And because uh, I was wondering about that, you know, what do, what do kids do to, because, you know, what happened to you, what happened with mm-hmm. the age old story of people, you know, being mm-hmm. uh, exploited or taken advantage of, what can they do to protect themselves? And so the work speaks for itself. The work speaks for itself, right? Like, I, the thing is, is that I was not thinking ever right about what does this mean for my career and blah 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 i didn't care i really didn't because i really wasn't thinking that way at all i was just thinking i was just pursuing what i believed i wasn't trying to piss anyone off i certainly didn't expect it to sort of go to a very um interesting polarity you know where literally it was theft you know and intellectual property but you know, because I, you know, I was the chief animator in the Abyss Dreamer Drive. I'm the only guy, you know, that was on all three of those films and personally did that data and animation. Personally? Personally. And, yeah. yet, and, and, and yet Hollywood is... But the thing is, the things, John, is... Very you, small industry. As you heard me say, yes. right, and, and, my, and my belief truly is, still, right, it was not about trophies. You know, I've won nine. I've won nine or ten Clios for my commercials. There's not one trophy in my house because I don't believe in trophies. And as I stated on stage with you today, to me, the trophy was the process of the people that you met. It's the relationships that you made. That was the trophy. You're here, right? And that's just, and 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 that's really the way. And and so I I think the good backbone or possibility for a district like this is that people understand family here. The families are very tight, right? They understand that. And so they understand the importance of relationships. So trophies mean crap to them. You know, Mm -hmm. at least that's what I surmise from here. So if I think the sincerity, the sincerity and the drive in order to make a film, you know, or, or, you know, young filmmakers in this district, when they start doing that stuff, the work is going to stand up for itself. And and then they know they're not going to be stepping on anyone's toes or pissing anybody off, Right. Because it's the relationships that they're making here. And that is the difference between here, by example, right, here in southern Missouri, or in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is, uh, you know, it's it's Babylon. It really is Babylon, you know. Yeah. I remember it well. Um, now, now, but you're advocating for for art for, not art for art's sakes, but that, that people should go out and pursue their, their artistic vision. Mm-hmm. There's a certain purity to that. And people who have purity mm-hmm. have to still deal with Babylon wherever they go. I have a friend of mine, a, a close friend, is a poet. She's a, mm-hmm. she's a Harvard-trained, she's Harvard-educated, mm-hmm. uh, PhD poet that can't get work in the entire United States because she got blackballed by her faculty. That's which, all it takes. And she needs, she needs them to get a job as a professor anywhere in the country. And so what do people do to protect themselves from that? That's actually interesting, John, that you raise that. So I've been blackballed essentially too, right? So they closed the old ILM Kerner stage. I don't know if you know this. And I was told not to show up to the final parties ever, right? Because I was a threat, right? You know, and and it's sad in a way. It was sour grapes for a bit and, and stuff. I was literally told, right, by the organizer, do not show up, right? You know, because we, and it was after I did the Netflix thing. When I did Netflix movies that made us, Jurassic Park, you know, it really pissed some people off. Because I just, I said, look, what do you, I said, we just want the truth. I said, that's what you're going to get, the truth. And they, they published it and it pissed off, you know, you know, you know who and them. And, but I didn't care because that's what I do. I tell the truth and sometimes say, well, you got to be careful about telling the truth. I said, why? 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 I've always been driven by telling the truth. Yeah it gets people mad you know 
And um, and so maybe the solution is for truth tellers and, and, and pure artists to band together. Exactly. And, the, and that's why I say I think the you know, the DNA and the foundation of a district such as this, the families that I've run into. Right. I think that they always have the, the parachute of good, tight family and friends. Right. And you can't and, and me coming from environments where it was not like that in Marin County. I mean, Marin County is like hot tub inbreeding syndrome, right? It's like literally. Is it kind of the uh, like the kind of the technology bro? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Facebook, Twitter, no, no, crowd and all that. No, and I'm talking Marin County up there. They're just spoiled brats, right? And basically, you know, the the syllabus of selfishness and greed is virtually taught in school, right? And the kids they have no manners at all. They're spoiled little brats. Right, and that's why I call it hot tub inbreeding syndrome. <laughs> I don't know if we find that a DSMV four, but or five. You like that? You like that one? Huh? That's a new one. Isn't that a good one? Okay. <laughs> oh man! So what's next for you? You're here in the Ozarks. You're with us, and now yep. you're part of our community. Oh, I'm. I'm We're not building going a film community. We'd love to have you here. Oh, I'm, I'll be back again, John. Are you kidding me? It was so. It was. You made it very easy. Today, it was a lot of fun. It was a very casual, great. Supposed to be. I'd I'd be more than happy to come back, of course. Absolutely, man. And and thank you for letting me be an idiot on stage, right? Uh, You was fine. If you're an idiot, then we're all idiots. I don't think I hit myself (laughs) enough with a microphone on the head, right? (laughs) I'm just glad you didn't use the one without the the, the cushion on. No, no, no. I learned that one. (laughs) I learned that the hard way after I cut my goddamn forehead. Before we go, I have to ask you because yes, sir. we haven't talked about it all night. Uh, and, and a lot of people want to know because there, there's a lot of Star Wars fans out there. What about Star Wars? You was involved. In fact, your your show clip, your show reel that you showed tonight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. had very, very short little two-second, three-second clip yep. or Jabba the Hutt. Yep. And, uh, so George Lucas approached me in 94, and he said, um, I wanted, I'm going to re-release Star Wars in 97 for the 20th anniversary. And um, he said, could you animate in the, the actor that I had that played Jabba? I never liked him. We shot second, second unit, you know, on it. So he asked me two things. Can you build Jabba and Data and cover up this old actor who was an Irish actor, they're Scottish, I believe, Declan, I can't remember his name. He died just recently. Hmm. And, and he goes, also, can you composite in Boba Fett? Right? So I said, well, so I talked to Annie Paulin, you know, and Annie Paulin was uh, sort of the head of wardrobe at that time. And George just, just find somebody who fit. He was so matter of fact. I really liked the guy a lot. George Lucas? Oh, God, yeah. Well, Even I, though he tried to get you fired? No, no, no. It, it wasn't George. He didn't really know. And, and actually, we had a long discussion. He came into my office and he goes, it wasn't me who tried to get you fired. It was Jane, right? His, his secretary. Really? Jane Bay, yeah. Mm. She tried to get me fired. Jane Bay, jab, uh. Dude, for real. You think so? No. I know for a fact. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Because she, she she looks like, she's the type of woman that when she went in a restaurant, she didn't ask for a menu. She asked for an estimate. <laughs> Does she still work for him? Is she around with us anymore? No, nah, she's she's retired, apparently. But, <laughs> but she's the original. She's, she's, she's the genesis but, but, of Jabba. But yeah, apparently. But the, 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 the drag was, Lucas was a really good guy. I really hit it off with him because his, the, one of my favorite films is American Graffiti. It changed my life when I saw it. Great film, yeah. It's a great film. And he did that film, right? And so, 
and he would always say, so how'd you get in this? And he was out in my Harley once he's sitting on the darn thing. And he goes, how'd you get in? I said, your film. What are you talking about, George? Man, that's how I got into engines. Because you're a goddamn film. <laughs> it's true. Graffiti, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I lived in Petaluma, California. Before I moved Which is where he, is that where he used to run? No, that's where he shot the film. Oh, that's did, not, she, did he, not know that. He lit it up on, on East Washington Street up there. That's where they lit it up. Right there is Masonic Hall. I'm a Mason. We're all Masons, you know. Oh, wow. Yep, we're all Masons. Yep. I'm not in the Brotherhood yep, yet. Yep, Maybe we'll consider. And uh, and so uh, there was a Masonic Hall there where they did that Johnny B. Good where you're like washing the Cadillac or you're, you're piercing the tires. But no, I, I, I that's where I lived. You know, that's that really, was, yeah, it's beautiful. But but so he had asked me, he goes, find somebody that fits the uh, Boba Fett outfit. And I said, okay. So I walked into Casper land, right, because they're working on Casper. No, I was not. I was on mask at that time. And I found a guy named Mark Austin. Now, Mark, he's an English animator, right? And I said, does anybody want to play? And George just goes, just, just go find somebody and shoot a blue screen and comp him in. I said, okay, cool. Right, and so the original neg was gone to that sequence. So all they had was an IP. Oh. All they had was an IP of which we discussed today. Interpositive, yeah. Interpositive, correct. And so he goes, just find someone who fits the costume. I said, okay. I said, uh, anybody want to play uh, Boba Fett? And Mark goes, oh, I do. He's at signing conventions to this day <laughs> about this. That played off oh, well yeah. for him. Yo, <laughs> yo, yeah, he's at signing conventions to this day, right? So I compliment and everything like that. And um, and uh, I had to cover up the old Jabba with my data of Jabba, right, and everything like that. So, and that's where I mentioned, you know, I said, well, well what lens you use in this? I know they're, they're Panavision, right, you know, Panavision lens. I said, yeah. uh, he goes, well, like, on Star Wars, I had a, you know, it was a low budget, $7 million, you know, something like that he made the initial Star Wars for. And I said, I had a 35 and a 50. I said, that's it, a 35 that, and a 50. That's what he said. All the live wow. action was done with a 35 and a 50. And because there was, no, crazy. There was no camera reports. right? Really? No, there's no camera reports. But Well, everyone was gone. They lost the neg. They well, I was going to ask, how did they lose a neg for I, any of that? Who knows, man? Who knows, man? That's crazy. I know it was nuts. You know, and Gary Rydstrom that did the sound for all those films, he, he used to be in the pit. So Lucas is sitting in my office, you know, once he was down a couple of times. I mean, I had, I, I had crazy, I had Michelangelo in my office. I had LL Cool J. You mean Carey. Michelangelo Antonioni, the Italian director? Yeah. Ooh, wow. In my office. Michelangelo, yeah, master. Michelangelo Antonioni. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So His Mich name, Michelangelo. Okay. Michelangelo, for God's sakes. He had had a stroke. He didn't speak any English. He had a translator who was this beautiful northern Italian girl. So he shakes my hand, and I was working on a racer at the time. I was, you know, visual effects supervisor on a racer with Arnold. Yeah. And he shakes my hand, and he looked right through my goddamn head. I just couldn't believe it. It was so intense. You know, oh yeah, I bet. Oh, wow, yeah. you got some great. You must have some great stories. Let's see. I'm trying to think of anything I got to compare. Uh, Marlon Brando threatened my boss when I answered the phone. He Ar said, "I'll I'll take care of your boss if you need me to. Just give me the word." Ar Arnold, that was a fun phone call. <laughs> Arnold's threatened to beat the shit out of me once. Ar oh, you <laughs> on a racer? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Did he mean that. it? Oh no, that's another story, man. That's oh a, my gosh. Oh, that's a, on, a, during a racer. Oh yeah, it was intense, man. Arnold Copelson's there. You know, the film's over budget. Chuck Ru Russell is directing it. And stuff, and they're within earshot. These big fat pigs, right? Just saying, mm. his, his career's over. It's done, and like within earshot. And Chuck was the nicest, nicest guy in the world. He was the of all the directors I ever worked for, right? He was the nicest guy. He was a really nice guy. And did he work again? 
Uh, yeah, I think he did that thing with um, The Rock, you know, whatever they mm-hmm. call that. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Scorpion King. Scorpion King. Was that, yeah, was that that's it? it. That's right. Yeah. Oh, man, that was a rough film to watch with the effects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I never saw it. Don't, don't, don't. No, I heard, I heard. I heard. <laughs> that's where, as they said in that, that's, uh, where, that's where films came off the rail. It's Back bad. Then. Well, it's the CG. The CG compositing was just... I just said, well, oh, I, I said, what the hell did I start? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's a role there. I really do for effects still. I mean, if they're properly used, yeah. I mean, I mean, you didn't create an apocalypse or a, or a movie holocaust. You did change movies, and that's actually actually you want to, to your talk credit because I mean, like what you did is on par with like talkies. I mean, you're you're you're. That's how much you disrupted things. I apologize. Okay. Well, all right, so. it's done. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I warned. I said, I said, Jurassic was the beginning of the end. You know, and, and I beginning I, of something, not the end though. Well, Just another phase. Well, the the, the beginning of uh, of abuse of film, in my view, right? You know. Well, think, how do we fix it? Well, I don't know. I mean, look at you know, even Ridley Scott. I think got confused about it when he did Prometheus. I was about to ask you about that you when know, we were talking about Alien yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's an like, interesting like, film. Like, why why did he have to feel that he had to describe everything? Right, to, to try and answer, you know what I'm saying, Jeff, right? Why did he feel he had to sort, sort of answer all those questions in Prometheus? Mm-hmm. You know, but, well, okay, why was that alien creature there? And I think that in terms of storytelling, in something like Alien, you did not know the full story of what you're looking at. No, that's kind you of an, that's a problem with extending your universe and your storyline right, right, more right, than effects. Right, 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 right. I mean, it's a great universe created by Alien. It is, and uh, I'm looking forward to all the universes that are coming that are not outside of Marvel. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank God I got my these guys got my six. Right? Yeah, they got your six for yep. sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think we're gonna have to have you back on. Well, please do. It's so. been a lot of fun here. Well, it's thank a, you. We've enjoyed. I've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed oh, it. I know everybody listening is going to enjoy oh, it. Oh, it's been a blast, John. You guys are great here. You know, well, you guys you. are great. I'd be more than happy to come back. Great people. If you'll have saying, us. Oh, absolutely. Well, you made it very fun. You made it thank very you. fun. And I really appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Thank you. We're going to go ahead and sign off then. Okay, yeah. sir. All, All right. right, sir. Thank you very much, John. You're welcome. Thank yep. you. Mm-hmm. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. We're going to tune out for the moment, but please come back. This has been Outland Filmmakers, Outside the Studio, Inside the Stories. This has been a podcast of the Ozarks Film Foundry. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you again soon.